everyone. Before we look forward to the future of the church, I want to look back for a moment. Grace Church has a fascinating backstory. So in 1895, 19 Swedish immigrants started a house church uh, on the corner of 7th and Holland in downtown Erie. It's the current location of the Grace Leadership Institute. Uh, Their desire was to have a gospel presence in this region. And so the Swedish Baptist Church was formed. Now, in looking back through their decisions historically, one thing was very clear. They were committed to playing offense in order to reach more people for Jesus. They built a building to provide stability and to bring in more people. They changed the language of services from Swedish to English in order to reach more people. I found out recently through multiple conversations that during a time of of great ethnic division in our city, they opened their doors for other ethnicities to worship in that building. They eventually moved to a fast-growing suburb called Mill Creek uh, in order to reach more people with the gospel. You know, they believed that the church was supposed to play offense. Offense means looking ahead, making decisions, drawing up new plays and strategies for the future. It's easy to slip into the mode of playing defense as a church, to try to build a little bubble around ourselves and retreat and complain about all the bad things that the world is doing. To to retreat into a cocoon while this evil culture is continuing to press in on us. That's not our DNA as a church. So each successive generation has created and innovated and designed strategies to reach more people for Christ. In fact, when I got to Grace in 1995, there was a group who had just done extensive work and research on the church's mission statement and values, and it was a new era for Grace Church. And it's been a beautiful and successful era. And since that time, we've continued to play offense. We moved again to make more space for more people from a landlocked three acres in Mill Creek to 31 acres in McCain. We multiplied churches in the commons and in Harbor Creek, and we expanded our ministries online and on TV. We launched a ministry called Servieri, and we launched a training center called Grace Leadership Institute. And so currently our ministry is reaching over 5,000 people every week here in the Erie region. And that's amazing, and we celebrate that. And since the 80s, the, the church model that's been most prevalent here at Grace is what is called the mega church model. And there are other names for it, but that's probably the most familiar to you. It was inspired by the likes of Willow Creek in Chicago and Saddleback in Southern California and, and others. And even though it's become popular these days to criticize this approach to church, I believe that God used this approach tremendously in our country to reach many, many people with the gospel. It was a necessary innovation for the church to reach the time and culture that it was operating in. It's a model of doing church marked by a more casual approach rather than formal. There's an emphasis on attracting people, seekers, they're called to come inside the church walls and hopefully make an individual salvation salvation decision. Messages in that model are geared around addressing practical personal needs and programming is designed to attract young families. Visitors are welcomed using best practices from the hospitality industry and outstanding customer service. Now, these are generalizations and and here at Grace, we were never fully engaged in this model. But again, I believe that many lives have been changed by churches and and this that, that use this model and that the model has served an incredible purpose for Christianity in America. And yet, there have been some unintended consequences from this approach to church. It was easy for leaders to get sucked into the trap of gauging ministry effectiveness by body count, the number of people attending programs, the size of the buildings, the bottom line financially. 
In addition, many churches have confused assimilation into the church's programs as discipleship or confused it with discipleship. The, the long and the short of it is, I've known deep down for a number of years that grace needs to shift our model. And, and honestly, I resisted, thinking that I could ride out the next 10 or 15 years and when I'm ready to hand the baton to the next lead pastor at Grace and that they can make the necessary changes. But God wouldn't release me to that. He, he, he called me to help guide us in this change. And just over a year and a half ago, I sensed a strong leading from God that the time is actually now, that we need to begin the shift now, and that we're entering a season of change for grace. Now, as I said, by all indications, things are going really well for us. <laughs> we're, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to make big changes when everything seems like it's going up and to the right. But there are plenty of examples in the church and in history in general that things can be going up and to the right and the nail is already in the coffin because leaders weren't willing to act. A business example is blockbusters, stubborn resistance to merging with Netflix. And in fact, they laughed Netflix out of the room and they tried to keep their box stores and video inventories while the whole world was moving to streaming. I don't want to be blockbuster, stubbornly running the old playbook of doing church while the world changes all around us. Now, this conviction has been bubbling up in me for, for years, and I took a risk at the 2022 annual meeting at Grace and put up a list on the screen with some initial ideas about what I believe God is calling us to. I called it some shifts in our church remodel. Here's the list. I said I would like to, for us to see less attraction and more mission. That instead of just inviting people to our buildings for programs and events, I see the people of grace on mission as pastors and hope bringers in their neighborhoods and workplaces. And when we do big events like Christmas at the Warner, our focus will be more behind the scenes on training and, and, and missional uh, decisions with a smaller group of volunteers who are pulling that event off rather than, than on attendance numbers. He said less big and more small. And so instead of driving people to large gatherings, what if we drove them to smaller cohorts and enclaves to pursue Jesus together? Less new, more old. That is to reintroduce ancient creeds and practices and liturgies and traditions to our church. Less telling and more training. That instead of creating content to motivate, what if we created accessible tools that people could use to live out their faith day to day? We said less counting attendance and more counting discipleship outcomes. Like, what if we could change the scorecard about what discipleship actually looks like in real life? We said less slick and more authentic. Let, let's take the shine off of everything and not make church look so perfect, but to help people see the realness of it. Less performance and more presence, that when we gather, let's recognize that God is here among us, that our gatherings are marked by transcendence with the Spirit of God, and that it wouldn't be just information about Him, but an experience of Him. We said less noise more space. Most people haven't stopped for 10 minutes all week when they get to church. What if we gather, when we gather, we provide not just teaching and worship, but a gift of space and reflection. And then less solo and more family. That the church is not just individuals, it's a family. And what would it look like to celebrate and practice the power of our communal presence in the world? You may have noticed that we've already begun to practice some of this. And that little list was inspired by a book that I had been reading at the time called Future Church. When I first read the list at that annual meeting, there was a spontaneous eruption of applause. I could sense the hunger in our church for these things. So our elders and our leadership team agreed that Grace would enter a season of renovation. We would rethink our model. 
We would redefine our finish line and our missional measures. We would reintegrate you know, what's happening at our sites with the great work that is happening at Servere and the Grace Leadership Institute. And the question you may be asking is why? Like if, if we're growing and our reach is continuing to expand, why not just keep doing what we're doing? What are the problems that we're trying to solve with this change? Now, I could talk a lot about this, but there are two problems that I wanna highlight for you today. One is internal, one is external. I realize this is a long setup before we hit our scripture text for today, but, but I believe I owe you the backstory on this series. So what is the internal problem? Well, we've replaced discipleship with assimilation. In, in broad terms, the assimilation funnel that churches like ours generally use to define success and engagement goes something like this. First, it assumes that people are gonna come to us. It's based on an attractional model that the church will attract people. And that, so guests will come in our doors and then the goal is that they will assimilate into the life of the church through this funnel, that they would attend first, and they would connect, and that they would serve. Now, I hate the word assimilate, but that aside, these things are really important. In fact, I wrote a whole book about the amazing lengths that so many of you have gone to serve in major leadership roles in the church. I think maybe better than any other church in the country, we've expanded the imagination for lay leadership within the walls of the church. But one of the issues with this funnel is the idea of diminishing return. So, so in round numbers, if 100 people attend, maybe 50 people will connect and maybe 25 will serve. Jesus' great commission says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And yet this model holds up what Dave Rhodes calls the functional great commission, which says, go and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to serve a couple of times per month. The difficult question is, is this Jesus' vision for his church? Is this what he died for? And hopefully you're, you're catching the rhetorical nuance of my question. One of the things that's motivated our team to, to change is a renewed commitment to a multiplication funnel. See, the model of Jesus didn't have a diminishing return. It had a multiplication impact. Even when he was speaking to large crowds, he was saying things like his kingdom would start small, like a mustard seed or a seed planted in the ground or a flicker of light upon a lampstand that would one day grow and expand for great impact. So, so Jesus' reverse funnel looked more like this, called, trained, and sent. And, and this is what allowed the Jesus movement to go from 12 to 72 to 120 to 3,000 and eventually to infiltrate the whole world with the gospel. See, instead of assuming people need to come to us, this model assumes that, that we're going to need to go to them. It's a missional reorientation. I want you to look at this progression of Jesus' ministry. In, in Luke 8.1, Jesus is doing the ministry himself. Luke 8.1 says that he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12, notice what they were doing, they were with him. He was doing the ministry, but the 12 were with him. And they were watching, and they were learning, and they were growing. They were working out their calling. But just one chapter later in Luke 9, 1 and 2, Jesus commissions the 12. It says that he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So that's 9-1. And then just one chapter later in Luke 10-1, the movement continues to expand outward. Jesus commissions the 72 then. It says, and after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And then by Acts 1 and 2, 
The 72 had become 120 disciples gathered in the upper room preparing for the next step. The Holy Spirit fell. And it says there were 3,120 people. And they were then told in Acts 2 to go into Jerusalem and to Samaria and to Judea and to the ends of the earth. And the future of the church is now forged by this multiplication strategy called, trained, sent. Now, as we've been working through this, this isn't a matter of replacing one funnel with another funnel. We're working on what's been called funnel fusion that we still need a process for bringing people into the church and helping them find connection and community and meaningful ministry. But we also need to overlay that with a greater discipleship focus that will empower and equip people to live out their calling and their mission in their everyday lives. It means reimagining the importance of ministry that happens outside the walls of the church just as much as what happens inside the walls. It involves doing a better job training and equipping you to be a disciple of Jesus in your own family, in your own neighborhood, in your own workplace, in the gym that you work out in. I heard someone say recently that the modern Christian is over-inspired and under-trained. And one of the examples that we've been considering is the Christian business leader who's, who really views his employees and, and maybe even his whole company as his ministry. And he cares for the people that he works with. He cares for their families. And he tries to disciple his employees in godly business principles. And all the while, he feels guilty that he's not in one of Grace's life groups. Well, for heaven's sakes, he's, he's essentially leading his own group of life group ministries, like in his workplace. But we just haven't counted that as ministry. We need to change the scorecard. And so how could we empower and equip that business leader and others with tools that would help him and you to live out your faith as a disciple of Jesus right where you're at day in and day out? So the internal problem is that we've been so focused on assimilation that we've lost sight of multiplication. And so we want to create a comprehensive disciple-making approach that is accessible and compelling where you live, work, and play. That's the internal problem. Well, what's the external problem? Well, the external problem is that Christianity is in crisis in America, and that may be understated. See, at the same time that Christianity is in crisis, the world is continuing to go to hell. We, we see lostness everywhere. People are so lost. People are so desperate. People are so desiring of something solid to hold on to. Uh, but less and less are they turning to the church. In a massive Pew Research study from five years ago, it was determined that Christianity is in rapid decline. Now, this may be necessary purging of the, the less than committed Christians, but the numbers are still troubling. In addition, church attendance, even among self-identified Christians, is in rapid decline. Concurrent to these declines, there is tremendous growth among three groups called the nuns, the duns, and the ums. The nuns are those people who don't self-identify with any religious affiliation. So these are the people, you know, who when they're asked what religious denomination they affiliate with, they check the box, none. Then there are the duns. These are those who exited Christianity and who are done with the church. Now, let me just give you some numbers about this. In the last 25 years, 15% of all adult Americans have what's being called de-churched. That's 40 million people have de-churched. Of those 40 million people who left the church, they're not just people leaving mainline churches or Catholic churches. 15 million of those 40 have left growing evangelical churches just like ours. This phenomenon has garnered a descriptor for the last 25 years. It's called the Great Dechurching. 
I'll put the numbers in perspective to you. More people have left the church in America in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So that's the nuns, that's the duns, and then there are the ums. The ums are those who are still fond of the local church. In fact, they still may be active members of the local church, but their weekly habits no longer include active participation in the church. So these folks take Jesus seriously, and they may even want to belong to a local congregation. They're not bitter. They're not cynical. In fact, they're quite uncomfortable with not being committed to a church but they're hesitant to re-engage with the church for a variety of reasons. Now, these studies were before COVID, and COVID has only exacerbated these trends. COVID was like an x-ray that revealed what was previously hidden from plain sight. So during this time of de-churching, instead, people are being discipled by cable news, they're being discipled by social media, they're being discipled by organized causes, they're being discipled by tribes and echo chambers, but they're no longer being discipled by the church. From the 80s until now, churches like ours have gone from being seen as the good guys in our society to being seen as the bad guys. We're not even neutral anymore. Instead, the stereotype is that we are close-minded, corporate, flashy and rich, overly political, performancy, only interested in drawing attention to ourselves. And so we need to rethink how we do church, not because we have a PR problem, but because we have a discipleship problem. The world has never needed the power of Jesus more than it does right now. Can you agree? And the world has never needed a strong church more than it does right now. The church is God's plan A for this lost world, and there's no plan B. And so how do we respond to these trends? Because if the P&L numbers at your company were declining like this, your company would do something about it. If your personal financial investments were seeing these kinds of negative trends, you would do something about it. Now, thankfully, Christ's church has a history of self-correction. When the church started to slip in its effectiveness, it reformed. So historically, when when the church got too clergy-focused, it reformed, or building-focused, or politics-focused. It changed and reformed. The message of the gospel, you see, remains unchanging, but the methods of the church must always change. What we're obligated to ask in every era, what is it going to take to reach this culture? Not the culture 50 years ago, not the culture 20 years ago, but this one. How should the church function? What kinds of disciples do we need to create in order to see more people in our day come to a saving faith in Jesus? You see, the church is a missionary outpost. And it's going to take a missionary mindset for us to move into this next season. There's an important principle that's repeated over and over again in in the Word of God. And that is that when mankind is lost, God sends. So when sin stained God's perfect world, God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden and he gave them this one command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my blessing. When mankind tried and failed at ultimate power without God at the Tower of Babel, he sent Abraham out of Ur to be a blessing to the nations. Into mankind's sin, God sent judges, he sent prophets, he sent priests, he sent kings, he sent missionaries, until one day he sent Jesus, his only son, to redeem the world from our sin. When mankind is lost, God sends. And here's the thing. When we get to the Gospels in the New Testament, we begin to see what I like to call the cascading sending of God. First, you see God sends Jesus. 
John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so God sends Jesus into the world to save the world. But look, now, secondly, God and Jesus then send the Holy Spirit. John 15.26 says, but when the helper comes, whom, you see this? I will send to you from the Father, so that's Jesus and the Father, sending the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. Now notice, Father and Son are sending the Spirit. But now look at John 20, 21 and 22. We see, third, God, Jesus, and the Spirit send us. All three are involved. So it says, as the Father has sent me, this is Jesus talking, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, now, and Spirit, sending disciples. And at the end of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we also see God, Jesus, and the Spirit sending the church. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the great commission, the true great commission. And so now the church is the focal point of God's mission in the world. I've heard it said that the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. We are his missionary outpost to reach a lost and dying world. And listen, if the world is no longer coming to us, we need to go to them. And I believe that we are positioned like never before to make a great impact here in this region and beyond. I believe the people of grace are postured in every industry in our region to make an impact, in every neighborhood in our region to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring a deep breath of fresh air to those who are living on fumes. But it's gonna take all of us adjusting our mindset a bit and our expectations of church a bit. Church is not just a place where you gather for worship, but it's a launching pad from which we scatter on mission. The church isn't just here to meet your needs. It's here to train and equip you to meet the needs of the world around you. The church doesn't just operate on Sundays. It operates on Monday through Saturday in an even more important way. Frederick Douglass was one of the most important prophets in American history. He was born a slave in Maryland in 1818. The world opened to him. When, when at age 10, his white mistress taught him the alphabet and how to spell simple words. He possessed a brilliant mind that he used to change the world. As a teenager, the Bible came alive for Douglas and he experienced a powerful conversion to Christ. But Douglas recognized an irreconcilable gap between the faith that he found in the Bible and the one practiced by the white slave owners. Out of respect for the Lord, Douglas's owner refrained from beating the slaves on Sunday but Monday was another matter. This obvious religious hypocrisy would animate and drive Douglas for the remainder of his life. And my question is, for how many of us do our Sundays and Mondays not match? You see, church is not a destination that you attend one day a week. It's a movement that you're part of all seven days of your week. When the church started, there was no liturgy. There were no traditions. They had no bands. There was no banners. There were no buildings. There wasn't even a completed Bible yet. There was no staff. There were no programs. It was a movement of people who were devoted not to a weekly event, but to a life on mission. Their goal was to lift up the name of Jesus, to live out God's story in their lives every single day, and everywhere they went. And as each person at Grace leans into a commitment to make your Sundays and your Mondays match, to be an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple, 
of Jesus, to understand your calling and then be trained up and sent out as lights in the darkness. We're gonna begin to see our little slice of the world start to be transformed one life at a time, one cubicle at a time, one front porch at a time, one cup of coffee at a time, one round of golf at a time, because everywhere you are, you've been sent there by God. But, but for all of us, it's gonna involve a missional reorientation. Let me explain it this way. Often we see our faith like this. It's us in the middle and God is on one side and the world is on the other side. See, this position forces us to assume one of three postures. Either the first is the posture of rebellion. This is where we run to the world, but by doing so, we also turn our back on God because the world is over here and God is over there. Second is a kind of wishy-washy faith. I, I turn to God on Sunday, but back to the world on Monday. I turn to God on Wednesday and back to the world on Thursday. God during a crisis, world during the good times. But the third posture this forces in, into sounds good on the surface, but it may be the most deceptive. And that is the posture of being insulated. It's the idea that when I turn toward God, that means I have to turn my back on the world. I must separate, I must disassociate, I must detach and cloister myself away. The problem with this approach is that eventually you're gonna need to go back to school and eventually you're gonna need to go back to work and back to your dysfunctional family. And so what's the answer? Well, Jesus models for us a radical missional reorientation. Instead of us in the middle, choosing always between God and the world, picture instead God in the middle and as we move toward God, we begin to move together with God into the world as the sent ones. It is our very faith that motivates us to get our hands dirty with the lost and broken. This is why Jesus had such problems with the religious leaders. Their, their paradigm was the first one, that you had to choose between God and the world, that you had to constantly choose between clean and unclean, and to choose one was to abandon the other. That's not what we see with Jesus. We see Jesus moving with God to eat with the tax collectors and sinners, moving with God to touch and heal the lepers, moving with God to embrace the woman caught in adultery and cancel her execution. Why? Because Jesus was showing us a radical missional reorientation. I wanna take you to the words of Jesus one more time, to a passage that's often misunderstood, but I think sheds some light on this issue. Jesus is casting his vision for his followers during his final formal prayer before the cross. It's over in John 17. He's praying for us, and it's a beautiful and humbling prayer. But there's a section here where a faulty slogan has originated. You've probably heard this Christian slogan that, that says this. It says, Christians should be in the world, but not of the world. Have you heard this before? That slogan is actually a misinterpretation of Jesus' words here. And there are two things wrong with the slogan. But before I get to that, let me read you the passage. It's in John 17, 14, and 19. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. This is Jesus talking about his followers. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. And as you sent me into the world, listen, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It's a beautiful text. But again, two things wrong with the slogan that says in the world, but not of the world. The first is it's the wrong word. He doesn't use the word in the world. He says into the world. That's a very different thing. 
being in the world and being sent into the world have completely different connotations. But the slogan is also in the wrong order. In the world but not of the world feels like the main goal is the not of part. Just hopefully in the end they won't be part of the world. Notice that for Jesus being not of the world isn't the ending point, it's the starting place. He begins with them being not of the world. He prays for them as they are then sent into the world. And so Jesus is not praying for us to be cloistered away from the world. He's, he's praying for our protection as we are sent into the world. So, so I think we should revise the slogan to read, Christians are not of the world, but have been sent into the world. We are the sent ones. And my question for you is, are you living your life as a sent one? Is your number one identity as a disciple of Jesus? And as a result, are you making more disciples of Jesus? Not just attending services, not just getting in a life group, not just serving in a ministry once in a while, but being a disciple of Jesus and then being sent out to help others take their next spiritual step in your everyday life. We're entering a new season where, where this is gonna be our focus and our priority. Some small changes have already begun. A team of 15 leaders with the input of a couple of hundred others at Grace have been working with a group called Clarity House for the last nine months or so. And in that time, the main goal was really to, to clarify a new scorecard. Beyond just measuring attendance and how much money comes in, how do we really focus on discipleship and multiplication at Grace during this next season? Here's what's not changing, okay? Our statement of faith is not changing. Our constitution as a church is not changing. There are no biblical or theological shifts we are making at all. We are standing steadfastly in historic Christian orthodoxy. The changes I'm talking about are tactical and methodological. These include a new mission statement and a restatement of our values that we're gonna share with you soon. We've created a new strategy pathway that moves the finish line for individuals at Grace from inside our walls to outside our walls. It also integrates Serviri and GLI into the core of our discipleship process. We've also been working on an 11-year vision that I think is gonna blow your mind, but it's gonna be a minute until that's ready to announce. Over the next few weeks, though, we're ready to present to you our new discipleship measures. We're calling it our Dream Disciple at Grace. There are four roles that we think every follower of Jesus at Grace needs to play in order to be the, the kind of disciple that will make an impact in our region for generations to come. We wanted this language to be accessible, but, but there's a deep well of meaning, of training materials that are gonna go with each of these roles. And so over the next four weeks, I wanna begin talking about these roles and unpacking them for us as a church. But, but let today just be an overview. The first role is a compassionate storyteller. It just says, I know God's story, I know my place in it, and I'm motivated to tell the people in my life. The second is savvy follower. It says, I discern God's voice and I follow his lead at the right time in the right way. Third is intentional friend. I partner with God to build healthy relationships and restore broken ones. And then fourth is embedded influencer. I understand how God has purposefully gifted me and positioned me to multiply his work in the world. I said at the beginning, those 19 Swedish immigrants didn't settle. They didn't rest. They didn't coast. They played offense so that they could reach more people with the gospel in this region. That's in our DNA. And this is our turn at the plate. 
for, for this generation, for this broken world. This is our moment. I can't wait to share more with you in the coming weeks. I love you guys.